Hello, it is Thursday, June 25th, 2020. I'm Caleb Farley, and this is the third episode of the Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy Podcast. I hope everybody's staying safe and healthy at home during the pandemic. Things are starting to slowly open back up here in Kentucky, and we've started with curbside pickup and printing and faxing services at the library. We're still not fully open to the public yet, but the renovation is going great. The carpeting should be going down soon, and I took a peek over at the new genealogy collection area, and it's going to look great. Um, There's a lot of windows, there's going to be a lot of natural light coming in, I think it's going to be amazing. I really can't wait to get in and start organizing it. In today's episode, we'll be listening to an interview with Lawrence County Superintendent William H. Heek from 1978. Um, He worked in the school district from 1927 until 1976, shortly before the uh, current Lawrence County High School opened. The interview comes from the Kentucky Oral History Commission. Um, We have a lot of their recordings in our oral history collection, and then they're on our website. It was recorded by Edward McCurley on August 8, 1978, at Mr. Cheek's home on Lock Avenue here in Louisa, Kentucky. I just want to give everybody an update on some of the projects that I've been working on for the genealogy collection. The Lawrence County Digital Yearbook Collection is complete as of right now. Um, We've gotten all of our yearbooks back from OCI and the PDFs are uploaded to the website. So far we have 1929, 1932, and a complete collection from 1936 up through 2019 for Louisa High School and Lawrence County High School. We are missing a couple few years in the 30s. I don't believe they were made for 30 and 31, but we do have that 33 through 35 gap to find out. I also did have um, OCI scan in the Blaine Elementary and High School yearbook for 1968. It's the only only Blaine High School yearbook that we have, so if anybody has any of the Blaine High School yearbooks, let us know. We'd be glad to take those off your hands for about 8 to 10 weeks, send them in to OCI and get those digitized and sent back to us. And you'll get them back in the same condition that you gave it to us in. We still have the Lawrence County Historical Cookbook Project. It's a digital cookbook that's on our website. Um, We have collected recipes from everybody here at the library and posted them on the website, and some of my extended family members have sent some in. These are people that are from Lawrence County, so if you have any recipes from your family that you would like to submit, um, send them to me. Uh, If you have a photo of the original handwritten recipe, that's even better. Send a brief history of the person, their full name, when and where they were born, who their parents were, stuff like that. And if you have a photo of the person, send that too. Um, There's some really good sounding recipes on here, and I'm thinking of starting to cook some of these and post photos with them or post them on the Facebook page. There is a peanut brittle recipe that I really want to try. Up next is the interview that Edward McCurley did with William H. Heek for the Kentucky Royal History Commission. It's a two-part interview. Um, They're both about half an hour each. The first part is just Mr. Cheek talking about his career, and the second part is the actual interview with Mr. McCurley asking Mr. Cheek questions. Um, So I'm including the second part. I have been transcribing the Kentucky Rural History Commission uh, recordings, and I'm going to be transcribing the podcast. So if you would like to read them, they're going to be available on the website also. This is an interview with William A. Cheek of Louisa, Kentucky, 
This interview was done by Edward McCurley for the Kentucky Oral History Commission on August the 8th, 1978. The interview was done at Mr. Cheek's home on Locke Avenue in Louisa. Okay, I think you said that, that you started out at Trace Branch School. Okay. That was my elementary school. That's where I went to elementary school. What was that school like? It was a two-room school, one room built above the other, and there was a huge bell tower, and uh, there was a big bell in it that told me to school uh, each day, and I walked a mile and a half to school, country road. That's back in the days when the road ran up the creek, and the creek ran down the road. And... Uh, when, when this building was torn down, uh, about the beginning of my administration, uh, there was a preacher up in the country uh, wanted that bell to put in a church, the Bell Chapel Church at the, at the Corpus of Georgia Street, and he wanted to buy it. And I said, I wouldn't sell that bell to anyone. But I'll tell you what I'll do, Dave Al, his name was Dave Al Hayes. I said, I'll loan you that bell, and you put it in that church house. And I want to make one reservation on it. After I grow old and, and decrepit, I, I want you to give me the permission, if I want to hear that bell again, to just pull that rope and listen to it. And he said that to bargain. So he put the bell in that church, but when they built a new road, they tore the church down. And I had forgotten about the bell until after the church was torn down and the road was built. And I began to inquire about the bell. And whoever tore the church down, was from down in Tennessee, the contractor, and I don't know where that bell is, but it's gone, and I'm sorry for that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nathan, it was two rooms, one above the other. How many teachers? Two teachers. Two teachers. Two teachers. How that was my first school that I taught also. I see. Taught that school two years. Well, how was it divided when you were a uh, student there? What grade in the bottom of the grade you taught? Well, uh... We didn't talk about grades in those days. We called it readers. How'd that go? Uh, we had the chart class and the primer class and the first reader, second reader, third reader, fourth reader, fifth reader. And that was as far as it went. Fifth reader was sixth grade. And uh, I think the first three readers was downstairs and uh, four or five was upstairs. That's the way we talked about it, upstairs and downstairs. And uh, we grew up under that circumstance. And there was six big elm trees out in the schoolhouse yard. And that's where the teacher got the wits that they laid on the students' back when they decided that they needed to be chastised. That's where I got the wits when I laid it on their back when I taught that school. That school was the school that I started teaching in. And I had students that were in the primary grades when I was an older student there. And some of my students were only three years younger than me. And uh, I know uh, I tried to teach school like they taught me to teach it in college. They said, you talk to these boys and girls and tell them right and wrong and they will understand. And they'll do the right if you will explain it to them. So I explained it to them, and I explained it to them, and I explained it to them for about two months. 
added, the school got to the point that when I rang the bell, one of these handbells that you would ring, that you, we call it taking up books, and uh, they would come in, we carried the water from the well in a water bucket and had a dipper, and they would spend a half hour throwing water on each other and getting a drink of water and cooling down, and uh, they just didn't have any discipline at all. And I wore out my mother's bed linens, rolling from one side of the bed to the other, thinking about why this philosophy that they had taught me in college didn't work. And one night, uh, I thought, well, what did Addie Burgess do to you when you used to try some of these same tricks on her? And I went off to sleep peacefully, and the next morning, I went back to that school and got me cut a limb off of one of those elm trees and trimmed it up real nice and tipped it off and stood it in the corner of the schoolroom and started looking for somebody to whip. And it didn't take me long to find out. And I whipped seven that day and seven the, next, the day after that. And uh, after that, when I rang the bell, they came in the house. And when I said, uh, boys and girls, it's time to start our studies and start our classes, they sat down and started their studies and started their classes. Now, I don't agree with that. Personally, I don't agree with that kind of tactic. But uh, if you don't have what it takes to get the, uh, get the question over to the student, it works. It does work. I know it works. But I don't agree with it. But it does work if that's the last resort. In other words, if the teacher is not comfortable enough to uh, solve the problem without the with, the with will work. Of course, you have to confront the parent sometimes after it's done, which I've done many times. <laughs> uh, when you started teaching, uh, what time did the school day start? Eight o'clock. Everybody was supposed to be present? Everybody was supposed to be present. Of course, there was a lot of tardiness. I solved the tardiness. Uh, I had a copy of Huckleberry Finn. And at 8 o'clock, I started reading. I read a chapter in Huckleberry Finn. And uh, a lot of the students hadn't arrived yet. So they came in later. So just before school was dismissed at 4 o'clock, uh, we had... Uh, we had school from 8 o'clock to 4 o'clock with a 15-minute recess in the morning, a 15-minute recess in the afternoon, an hour, noon hour. And everyone brought their lunch in a pail or a, or a lard bucket or whatnot. And they sat on the rocks outside if the weather was permitted and, and ate their lunch. But just before school dismissed, I would read that chapter again. And after the third day, reading, re repeating the reading of the chapter in the evening just before four o'clock, I said, now, I'm going to read the next chapter in the morning, chapter number four, and I'm not going to repeat it tomorrow afternoon. If you're not here in time, you won't hear chapter four. So they were tardy on the fourth morning, and that afternoon they started begging me to read chapter number four, and I refused. And I said, if you want to hear chapter 5, you'll be here in the morning. And about the third day after that, they were all there. <laughs> now, 
What about subjects? Are they the same as teachers are teaching now, as broad and more limited? Well, they don't teach, you don't teach really. We taught subjects back in those days. We taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, as the old thing is, to the tune of a hickory stick. But really, you don't teach subjects. You teach children. That's the proper way to do it, teach children. And uh, I think uh, the first most important thing is to try to teach children the health habits. And uh, I have a philosophy, well, you want to know about the old time way. Uh, now we teach children, or we're supposed to teach children. To tell you the truth, now I don't think we teach children much of anything to a great extent. We spend most of the time going to get a uh, milk break, they have different kinds of breaks. I had a teacher tell me one day this week that she substituted one day last year, and she said she didn't have a single class during the whole day that wasn't interrupted with some kind of a break, and uh, orange juice drink, uh, break, uh, milk break, uh, play break, uh, uh, music break, uh, some other kind of break. And I don't know. That, now, I don't agree with that philosophy, personally, too much. I don't say it's wrong or right. I just said I don't agree with it. Because <clears throat> it has been my philosophy that if you can teach a child to read and teach them to add, subtract, multiply, and divide, and teach them when to do which one, and by the reading, I don't mean just pronouncing the words. I mean getting the thought from the printed page, just like one person talking to another. The book is talking to the reader. And if the reader can get the, the theme and, and what the book is saying to, uh, they can read. Now, if they can't get the thought, they can't read. But if a student can do those five things, and if they can learn to say, yes ma'am and no ma'am and thank you and if you please i've told many a young teacher that that's all i wanted to teach my students and after that you can teach them anything else that you want to teach but be sure and teach them those things so that is my personal philosophy of what an education is i get my religion down just like that too there's four passages of scripture in the Bible that if I ever, after I ferry across the river called Sticks and climb the Golden Stairs and knock on the pearly gates, uh, if these four passages of scripture, first one is Matthew 7, 12, it says, Therefore all things whatsoever you would that men should do unto you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then John 13, 34, Christ said to his disciples, A new commandment I give unto you. Now this is in, addi in addition to the ten that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. He said, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. And you go over to John 3, 16 to see how much I loved you. And it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. And he said to the rich young ruler when he asked him what he had to do to be inherit eternal life, he said, Go sell that which thou hast, and divorce yourself from your earthly gods, and come follow me. Now he didn't mean that this ruler couldn't own property or anything. 
he's a trustee of it, but use it for the benefit of people instead of entirely for himself. And it's not against uh, religion to own property and own businesses and so forth, but you're only a trustee of it while you're here on this earth because it says life is but a span from eternity to eternity. Man that is born of woman is but a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a weed, he's cut down. And I've reached that age now that I can see life is really short. Of course, you haven't reached that age yet because uh, when I was 30 years old, I had all oh, I had all my life in front of me. And time was going to last forever. But time was about to run out on me. And not much more. And I can see that it's important that a person do what they can do. Now, the world doesn't know anyone a living. The world doesn't know anyone anything except the opportunity to do the things that they should do to advance the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is the people who walk the earth. And I think William Cullen Bryant said, the millions that trod the earth now are but a handful of those which sleeps within her bosom. And they're all included. Would you say that general philosophy and theology, which you mentioned, is the kind of thing that you feel has underscored your efforts through the years? Is that what you have yes, sir. tied those together? Yes, sir. I did what I thought was right. As I told you, I tried to suit everybody in the beginning. Found out I couldn't suit anyone, especially me. So I decided to do what I thought was right for my fellow man and their children. That's where I stood a long time. That's where I stand on the last day. Let me move us from philosophy back to maybe some architecture. Okay. <laughs> in the outlay of your schoolroom that you were teaching in, what kind of desk? It was a two-student desk, had an inkwell over on the side and a, and a groove along the top of the desk, and the desk really was on the back of the seat in front of you. Mm -hmm. And, well, actually, the first year I went to, they were homemade benches, and there was six set on a seat. And... Uh, That was something you didn't know who you were going to sit by, and sometimes they had they had uh, uh, creeping dandruff and so forth. Creeping dandruff. Yes. <laughs> uh, the teacher's desk was a was a small desk with a rail around the the back from the teacher, and so they could set some books on it. Sometimes it had a drawer across the top where the teacher's knees sat on the desk. And sometimes later, when they improved it, there was two or three drawers down on the right side. And that was, that was excellent in my day. You said you sat on a homemade bench when you first went to school. Yes. And a table in front of you? No, it had a desk. Uh, built on, the carpenter had built a desk on the back of the seat in front of you, just like the, it was a shelf, really, with another shelf under it, so you could put your books under there, and you could write on top. How was the school heated? Pot-bellied stove, Burnside, 
fed it with coal. Who was responsible? Teacher. The teacher was everything. Janitor, teacher, just name it. The teacher was the, the chief cook and bottle washer. I heard some places that students alternated in bringing fuel for the uh, stove. Oh, students, students, they like to get out, as they do in these days, they want to get out of class and they say, Teacher, can I get a bucket of coal? Teacher, can I get a bucket of water? Teacher, can I do this? Any kind of a thing to get out of class. I know when I was teaching a one-room school up upper tub one time, I would look back at my students. They were sitting at the same kind of desk that I sat. And uh, I'd see a little fellow, you know, his feet couldn't reach the floor, just dangling there. And in the afternoon, it'd be hot and it's sleepy. And I'd say, uh, uh, Johnny, uh, how would you like to go out there to the creek and get me five little yellow rocks about the size of my thumbnail and uh, and six little uh, white ones and bring them in here for me? Well, that got him out in the sunlight. That got him out in the fresh air. That woke him up, and he was uh, happy because he had an assignment, and he had he'd go out and get the pebbles and bring them in and lay them on the corner of my desk. I'd be listening to a class. We had a recitation bench, a big long bench across the front. We called the class up from their seats in the back to sit on the recitation seat to recite, and then we would dismiss the class, and they'd go back to their seats, and we'd call the next class. But this child would come up and lay the pebbles on the corner of the desk, and I'd say, now, how many white ones were you supposed to get? Six. Well, how many white ones did you get? Count them. So they'd count them. One, two, three, four. You know how children do. How many yellow ones did you get? Five. Well, count them. Okay, now you had five yellow ones and six white ones. Uh, how many pebbles did you get altogether? Oh, I don't know. Well, count them and see. So uh, that's the way I did things. And then I would use those pebbles. We had a sand table over in the corner that we would build uh, old log cabins and, uh, and old schoolhouses and the old well and the old sweep on it and any kind of a project that we'd put on the sand table. We would use those things that the children brought in to put on the sand table. Or we would use them to put on, I bought cardboard. The teacher was responsible for buying the cardboard because no one had any money. And most people didn't have any books back in those days because they weren't free. And we would make posters, all kinds of posters. And we'd hang them up on a wall. And we would have the children to decide which one was the best one and which one was the prettiest one and which one was this. And anything under God's heaven to, to keep their attention. That, uh, keep their mind busy instead of being idle. Idle mind, they say, is a devil's workshop. <laughs> and when I had the little fellows, the chart class or the first grade, they were little fellows, and they'd sit down low on these little chairs, and I'd sit down on the floor and cross my legs so I could, my eyes would be on the same level as theirs. And uh, you can get their attention a lot better then you can if you stand way up like this and look down at them. You get down here on their level and you can talk to them and they'll talk to you. How did you deal with few or no students having books? How did you teach them? That is, 
particularly reading and writing and things like that? I had a typewriter, a portable typewriter, and I taught some of my eighth grade students to write on a typewriter. I couldn't write on a typewriter myself, but I taught them how to write on a typewriter. And they would make copies. And I would hand those copies out to, for the children to take home and study and bring back and read to me the next day. That kept the eighth grade students busy making copies and the little fellows busy learning how to read. And uh, I know there was another boy that he wasn't interested in anything except trapping polecats and muskrats and so forth. And he'd come to school in the morning, cold weather, and sit by the stove and stink everybody out of the schoolroom with that uh, skunk uh, sense, you know, and, and go to sleep. And uh, finally one day I couldn't get him interested in reading or adding or subtracting or anything. And his name was General. And I said, General, what are you going to do with these pelts that you skin them? muskrats and skunks and anything that you trap. I'm going to sell them. Who are you going to sell them to? Oh, he said, there's a man comes through a certain time of the year and buys them. I said, are there different grades of them? There's first class, second class. Oh, yeah, there's, they have different grades. And I said, do you know enough about them to decide which is the grade and about what price you expect to get and all that kind of thing? Oh, yeah, I said, I know that. He was about 12, 14 years old. And I said, well, uh, suppose you take a piece of paper here and you know how many polecat pelts you have and how many muskrat pelts you have and about what grade you're going to be in. And you put down the figures uh, about what you expect to get out of those uh, pelts. And uh, he did that. I got a little mathematics in on him that he didn't know about. And then I said, uh, now, this man, what does he do with these pelts when he buys them from you? Oh, he sells them to somebody else. And I said, he makes profit on them then, doesn't he? Well, uh, yeah, I guess he does. And I said, why don't you just sell them to the same fellow that he sold them to, and you get what he makes out of it, too? Well, he hadn't thought of that. And I said, who does he sell them to? I don't know. Well, I said, I know some, some fur companies. There's the Hill Brothers Fur Company and... and uh, I had four or five or six fur companies, and I said, I'll bring those addresses to you tomorrow, and suppose you write these these uh, companies a letter and ask them how to ship your pelts to them, how to prepare them and box them up and, and send them to them, and you ship them direct to the fur company, and they will grade them and send them to you, and you'll get what you make and the man in the middle, too. Well, he said, that's fine. So I brought uh, the addresses the next day, and helped him write the letters. So he found out how to write a business letter. And he got the prices and he got the information and he fixed his pelts up and sent them. And I said, now, uh, General, uh, suppose uh, uh, you expect to get, how much money is all together now you expect to get out of it? And it was, I don't know, 15 or $17 or something other. And I said, what are you gonna do with that? Oh, he said, I wanna buy me some steel traps. I'm tired of making deadfalls. And I'd like to get me a 22 rifle, a single shot. That's where you're going to get it. Well, he said, I guess I'll get it from Sears Roebuck. Well, I said, do you have a Sears Roebuck catalog? Yeah. I said, have you picked one out there? Yeah. I said, bring it to school in the morning. So he brought the catalog to school in the morning, and I said, now, which one of these 
rifles do you want? He said, I want this one right here. Well, I said, why do you write, uh, want this one? Well, it says right here that this, so I said, read it to me. So he read it to me, and I said, that's, I said, what's the matter with that one up there? That one looks to me like it's uh, uh, maybe better than this one. Read what it says up there. So I read him all, all through the rifles division of the Israel uh, catalog. How big is that? Eighth grade class. I mean, sometimes they run all the way from one to, I taught one school that had 73 in it. And I've taught from 73 down to 20 some different schools. I put 49 years in in this school system teaching administrators, not counting as a student. Of course, I did some work, some college work out of this county, a little, not much. I don't know much, but what I know, I know as well as anyone. (laughs) What probably is, let's call it the most significant change that maybe you've seen in the school system, not just the time you started teaching, but from when you started going to school to today? Well, the biggest change to me has been recently, not too many years ago. There has been a trend toward the permissiveness. Uh, young people today don't have the responsibilities that they used to have. I know when I was growing up and many years thereafter, all boys and girls, especially those reared in the country like I was, they not only had the, the school responsibilities, they had uh, responsibilities at home. They had milking to do and wood to get in to cook their meals and the coal to carry in to heat the home and, and the milking to do and the hogs to feed and the, uh, the milk to strain and uh, the potatoes to dig and the garden to raise. and, and uh, Children these days don't have any responsibilities. And uh, Mama doesn't bake bread at home. They go down to the store and get it. Mama doesn't peel the potato at home very much. They go down to the store and get it already peeled and powdered and add a little powdered milk to it and some water and, and make mashed potatoes. Uh, everything is, uh, is prepared. And there's not too many young people have responsibilities to learn as they grow up. They have to learn their responsibilities if they ever learn them after. Is that out? Uh, they have to learn these responsibilities after they get to the point that they have to accept them uh, or be fed by the government or feed themselves one or the other. There wasn't any relief or uh, or free handouts uh, back in my days. I've had many uh, fathers come to me and say, I my family starving. I said, did you raise a garden last year? No, no, I didn't raise a garden last year. Well, did you have time to raise a garden? Yeah, but I just didn't raise it. And I would tell them, well, I'll tell you one thing. I've noticed over my life period that any family that has a potato hole and a cabbage ridge just doesn't starve worth a damn. 
You just can't starve them. And they don't have pellegri either because the cabbage keeps them from it. If they only eat white potatoes, they will. In the interview with Mr. Cheek, he spoke about the one-room schools in Lawrence County and his experiences teaching in them and growing up in them. In the Lawrence County History book, under an article titled Summit School, it explains that it was the last one-room school in Lawrence County. The article reads, The original Summit School was built in the 1800s. It was located about one-quarter mile north of the one-room school, which was the last one-room school in Lawrence County to close its doors. It had windows facing the road and shutters which were closed at night. It had a coal-burning potbelly stove in the middle of the room, a large blackboard, and seats that you could seat two or more. The well was in the yard, and usually children got a drink of water before going inside, especially after recess. A list of some of the teachers who taught at this school. Madge Hayes, Molly Justice, Mary Compton, Beulah Collinsworth, Mert Shannon, Helen Farley, M.C. Sammons, Lita Pickerel, George L. Childers, Gladys Walker Belcher, the last three are still living, June 1990. Lita Pickerel lives in Huntington, West Virginia, Gladys Walker Belcher lives in Southgate, Michigan, and George L. Childers lives in Louisville, Kentucky. Following students are living in the community Nancy Sammons Hacker, Pearl Moore Maynard, Ruth Roberts, Faye Thompson, Thelma Maynard, Hansford Ward, Martin Ward, Clarence Sammons, and Gladys Pennington. On Friday afternoon, the students usually enjoyed a railroad spelling match or a spelling match from spelling books, an adding match, or a ball game. The one-room school, which closed in 1976, is shown in the photos. And in the article, there are several photos of the one-room school, and it looks like your traditional one-room school. A door at one end of it, windows down the side. It was built in 1936 by B.J. Hilton and son Wilson Hilton, Bill. Bill lives in the community with wife Florence. Luther Wellman also worked on building the school. Janice Hale, a graduate of Western Michigan, was the school's last teacher. Other teachers who taught are Harold Booth, Wayne Osborne, Nancy Kearns, Goldie Isaac, Gladys Belcher, James Cheek, Pansy C. Walker, Gladys Pennington, and Mildred Ward. Mrs. Pansy Walker ended her teaching career at Louisa Elementary School. She later became a board member of Lawrence County Schools. She is serving as a member of the board and resides in Louisa, Kentucky. Gladys Pennington taught at Summit 1948 to 1955 and finished her teaching career in Louisa schools. She received her 8th grade diploma in 1934 from Summit School. Her teacher was Gladys Walker Belcher, who taught in both buildings. Gladys Pennington's father, Herbert L. Franklin, also attended Summit School. He was a trustee of the district when teachers were hired by trustees and superintendents. Mildred Ward taught Summit School from 1955 to 1973. She taught for 18 years at Summit, then moved to Louisa Elementary. She is now retired and lives on Route 2, Louisa, Kentucky. The following attended Summit, the last one-room school in Lawrence County, and reside in the Summit community. Wilma Jean Hacker-Lamaster, Lennox Hacker, Ann Sammons-Hammond, William T. Hammond-Bill, Richard Jordan, Logan Moore-Pete. 
there are many more still living in the county that are not listed. Any teacher or student can glow with pride as they think back to being a part of one-room schools by Gladys Pennington. And again, this can be found in the Lawrence County History book under Summit School T163 on pages 182 through 183. And it does include photos of some of the people mentioned in the article. In the first episode of the podcast, when I interviewed Joy Hillman, she spoke about Tony Webb, a huckster that lived in the area when she grew up. I'd never heard of a huckster before, so I did some Googling on it, and looking through the Lawrence County History book one day, I found an article titled, T.T. Webb May Be Last of Old-Time Hucksters. This is article B14 on page 248, and it actually comes from an article that appeared in the Ashland Daily Independent, written by George Wolford. Um, The article was later submitted to the Lawrence County History book by Roy Webb. The article reads as follows. Webbville. T.T. Webb may be the last of the old-time hucksters in northeast Kentucky and says the nature of the business is now such he doesn't expect to go at it for more than 17 additional years. He'll be 100 then, and if he does stay at it that long, he will have been huckstering for something like 50 years, and that doesn't count the years before when he traveled through eastern Lawrence County buying up chickens and eggs. A huckster is a special kind of salesman, one who carries his wares, usually small items, from door to door. Traditionally, each has his own pitch, often calling loudly from the street to vend produce or specialty items. Every Friday afternoon, T.T. loads up his truck with stock from his small store. On Saturday, with a chauffeur, he travels a set route and calls out his customers. His load consists of such articles as canned goods, bagged beans, mixed candy, bottled pop, and if people call in an order ahead of time, hardware, nails, feed, or something big. Along that route, Webb Villians marvel at the dexterity and agility which he handles his business, jumping up on the tailgate of the truck and coming out quickly with a box of stick candy for the kiddies. All this for a man nearing 83 years. Tony T. Webb, the T in the middle doesn't stand for anything, has been traveling through the country around Brammer Gap and Webbville as a huckster since 1941. He uses a 1959 truck, the fifth he's had since he bought one for the store trade, in 1937. But I wasn't huckstering then, he's quick to point out. I was still going about, buying up chickens and eggs and selling them to the trade. He had been supplementing his farm income for many years at that time, first selling them to wagon-driven Jim Ratliff from over on Little Cat, the first peddler to ever come in this country. Webb used a horse-drawn wagon himself and later began to ship his eggs to Ashland by way of the Eastern Kentucky Railway, which dead-ended at Webbville. I sold them to George Fannin, now over on East Fork. Most of the Hupster-type trade in early days was done by pack peddlers, usually foreign immigrants who transported dozens of small items in a pack on the back. I remember one who came through here, Harrison Johnson, an Irishman with a basket on his back full of notions and tinware. There was a couple of others, foreigners, when I was a boy. Pack peddlers make up much of the folklore of the mountains, and Lawrence County has its own stories. Johnson was killed 30 years ago on Cat. I suppose he's dead, for he took $1,000 out of the bank and not long after he disappeared. They found some of his equipment, the straps he carried his basket on. There were other hucksters, Cyrus Webb, Jake Neal, and Fred Thompson through the years, but now there's nobody else I know of. In those early days, it didn't matter much that Webb gathered his eggs and chickens by wagon. I wore out two pair of gray horses and a pair of mules. 
The roads were narrow and dirt with gravel. When he first started, his main product was feed for farm animals. I sold 50 or 60 bags a week, and now I'm lucky to sell three. The decline in feed sales is indicative of a general decline in dairy farming. But overall, the downturn of the Huckster's business can be blamed on improved transportation. When he started, no one had a car and the roads were inhospitable. Now, good cars and roads allow residents to drive to a trade center where greater choice is available. Additionally, those roads and good time elsewhere have drawn away much of the population he used to serve. I used to work all day, every Saturday, working as hard as I could go. Now it might take three hours. There are two big hollows off Cooksey Fork where I count on selling $75 to $100 each, Job Hollow and Carter Hollow. Now, there's no one in either hollow. With business declining, is it really profitable to continue? No, I do it now for an accommodation. I've got customers on my route who are with me when I was on a horse, four or six families, and I still go on to their account. They stayed with me, now it's my duty to help them, folks who don't have cars to get out. Ironically, Webb does not drive. I never learned. He gets someone in the family or neighborhood to drive his truck for him while he handles the merchandising. Right now, it's Matthew Adams. And as consumers dwindle in their use, they drop off, cutting down the size of the route. Some quit, and I just bypass them unless they come out to stop me. The regulars, I stop every week. He keeps accounts in conjunction with his store at the head of Caney, near Brammer Gap, and repeats his intent to stay with the old way of selling until he's at least 100. This article appeared in the Ashland Independent. A question I've been asked by some of the people listening to the podcast is, what are some of the upcoming episodes? One episode I want to do in the fall, more than likely in October, is going to be on local ghost stories and urban legends. Um, Everybody has those stories of things that go bump in the night, or they've seen something that they can't quite explain, and... I like to get those recorded by the people that actually experience them and put into the podcast. You know, we can't really meet up in the woods in the middle of the night around a campfire like the Midnight Society and tell these ghost stories, but we can record them and put them on a podcast on Spotify and iTunes and everybody can listen to it that way. Another one I want to do is on local true crime. If anybody listens to the podcast, My Favorite Murder, I am definitely a murderino, so I'm working on looking into local history, going through some of the, you know, the big Sandy News and local newspapers, trying to find local true crime. Um, I try to find older stuff that people haven't heard about. There's actually a urban legend I heard when I was a kid that I'll be talking about in the Urban Legend podcast that turned out to be true crime. So there'll be a little bit of crossover with that. So with that, we'll bring the third episode of the Genealogy podcast to a close. If anyone has any questions or comments, feel free to reach out to me at the library or by my email, caleb at lcplky.org. We also have our Lawrence County Public Library Genealogy Facebook page, so you can get in touch with me there too. If you or anyone you know would like to do an oral history interview for the podcast, or you have something that you think needs to be covered on the podcast, feel free to shoot me an email. Until next time, have a great day.